Welcome to Pursuing Justice. I am Harriet Hendel. Today, we have two guests, Kempis, also known as Ghani, songster, and Terrell, also known as Rel Carter. Before we meet them both, I want to read a quote from a very scholarly and long 66 pages article from the Northwestern Law Review co-authored by our two guests and a professor of law at Drexel University. We will meet Professor Rachel Lopez in a couple of weeks. The article is titled Redeeming Justice. And here's the quote I want to read. All humans should have a legal right to redemption, a right embedded in the Eighth Amendment. Change is always possible. A very brief introduction to Ghani and Rel, my two guests today. Terrell spent over three decades of a life without parole sentence in Pennsylvania. Governor Tom Wolf commuted his sentence and he was released in July of this year, 2022. He will share a long list of accomplishments with us during the next two podcasts. Campus, also known as Ghani, also spent three decades in prison beginning at the age of 15. He was released in 2017. He too has a long list of achievements. I am honored to have you both on the podcast. Welcome. Thank you, thank you, Mary. Blessed to be here with you today. Likewise. Great. All right. So we had a few technical difficulties, but we're all together and that's all that counts. I'd like you both to share your stories of being incarcerated and at the same time address the concept of life without parole. Who would like to begin? Um, you can go ahead, Don. I'll go after you. Oh. Okay. Yes. Um, my story, uh, well, my experience in prison began, as you mentioned, Harriet, at the age of 15, four months after I ran away from home uh, from Brooklyn, New York to Philadelphia, uh, about a week before I completed the ninth grade with a childhood buddy um, that I knew since the second grade. He was also 15. Um, we ran away from Brooklyn, New York to Philadelphia, for Pennsylvania, about 250 miles away from home. Our parents didn't know where we were and were looking for us. Um, while we were um, involved with unsavory company, we joined the gang, right? And four months later, after selling drugs out of fortified row homes for this, uh, for this gang, you know, along with other runaway children, because it was runaway children from all around the country that was working in this situation. In one of those very drug houses, uh, an act of violence took place, an explosive and um, ultimately fatal act of violence between three of us. Um, and I was directly involved in that situation. Um, as a result of that, I was sentenced to life without parole. In Pennsylvania, life without parole is not like in other states uh, where you might serve any number of years and then you're eligible to see a parole board. 
Um, like some states might be 20 years, other states might be 25 years, and then you're eligible for consideration. In Pennsylvania, there is no such consideration. You're sent to prison effectively to die. And the only way you're coming from out of our life without parole sentence in Pennsylvania is through overturning your case by some miracle through the appellate process, by some greater miracle um, through the commutation process like Terrell here uh, did with uh, maybe escaping from prison or as you know, to be frank, coming out in a zipped up in a bag with a tag on your toe, right. you know? And um, so, which is why over the years, over the past five years or so, many of us have chosen to call the sentence, um, what it really is more aptly death by incarceration, because it is effectively the other death penalty. That's right. All right. We have your story, Ralph. How, how did you end up in prison? So um, for me, I think my incarceration started way before uh, June of 1992 when the handcuffs were placed upon my wrists. I think my, my, my prison sentence started when I was a, a, a child, a young, a young boy. Um, I was imprisoned by feelings of self-doubt, lack of self-worth, um, and that kind of like influenced all the decisions that I made, you know, because of, because of how I felt about myself, I ended up, uh, as a, as a young guy, um, becoming addicted to drugs because that was the only way that in my young brain could, I, I could figure out like how to feel good. And as a result of my drug addiction, you know, um, I ended up in a situation where I was participated in a robbery and uh, somebody lost their life as a result of that. And so in 1992, I was arrested for that. And later that year, in December that year, I was uh, convicted of second degree murder and condemned to spend the rest of my life in prison. Um, so the moment the handcuffs were placed upon my wrist, was the moment that I that I said to myself, like, because I never considered myself a bad person, <clears throat> and so for me, I was I was I could I could I could clearly remember sitting in the back of the police van, you know, thinking like, how did my life turn out this way? Like, I thought I, I considered myself generally a good guy. Um, I did some bad things, but I wasn't a bad person. So as a result, how did I my life end up in this way? And so the most easily identifiable thing for me was the drug addiction. So in that, in, that, in that moment, I said, okay, I'm done with that. So then I had to figure out like, well, why was I getting high in the first place? And that's when I, that kind of put, uh, put me on this journey of, of, of some deep self-reflection. reflection. And, and in doing that, I was able to figure out like I didn't like myself very much. And then I had to figure out like how to remedy that. And it was this whole process that I had to go through in order to get to a space where I could love myself, where I could feel good without anything outside of myself. Right. And and, and going through all that, <laughs> I had. Um, there's this thing like when when we when we when we when we are arrested for these kind of crimes and I'm, I'm talking about those of us who've done these things and then plead not guilty 
right? Because is there's when you when you when you find yourself in a situation like that, there's only two outcomes: either you go to court and you beat the case, or you're found guilty and you spend the rest of your life in prison. And so, you you think about beat, winning the case all the time. You're consumed with that because and so as a result of that you become consumed in in about the process because none of us i think were treated fairly within the judicial system none of us got fair trial so that's what we become consumed with but in doing that we forget about the harm that we're responsible for causing you know right. that becomes almost something that didn't happen because we construct lies in order for us to uh, 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 win. We construct these whole narratives that allows us to win because the win means we gain our freedom back. There's nothing um, in the system that will allow for healing or, or being able to take full responsibility because if you do that, you'll never see the light of outside of a prison wall again. And so we're kind of like trapped in these spaces of denial. And so you know, I kind of was looking everywhere else but within to, uh, you know, blame uh, for my circumstance. It was it was the system. It was the racist courts. It was all these things. And so I couldn't reconcile um, being responsible and societal influences. I couldn't reconcile those two things until one day I had a conversation with Ghani. And and and, and I explained to him my struggle. And he said, i never forget this, because it was like kind of like uh, almost life altering for me. Like it literally uh, made me look at things in a completely different way. And so Ghani said, Terrell, imagine you're in a, in a courtroom or room and you're sitting in front of a panel of people or judges and you have to convince these people why it would be a good idea to let you go. Your little freedom depending on what you say. And so you're in this room and you, you've been practicing and preparing for this moment, and the moment is finally here, and, and right before you get a chance to utter a word, an older woman stands up in the room and says, but you killed my son. He said, what would you say to her? And in that moment, I was I didn't know what to say. I just, because I never thought about that kind of pain. That I, I, never, that never, I never considered it. I was trapped in this selfish bubble that I had created in order for me to regain my freedom, never considered anything else. And so he forced me to think about that mother. And so I said, sorry. And he said, that's the only thing you can say, you know? And so in that moment though, I became acutely aware of the pain that I was responsible for bringing in the world and then, and that was how I was able to reconcile those two things. You can acknowledge the pain that you've caused and at the same time acknowledge the unfairness of the system. Sure. So that's that's right. been my journey. Thank you. Thank you. So in prison, you were both there a total of 60 years added between you, 30 and 30. What I would like to know is how you each did your time, not knowing necessarily that there would be an end point where you would walk out. Um, you chose both of you to get involved in a variety of things. Um, I'll mention hospice, writing, 
higher education and the issue that brings us together, which is this whole sentence of death by incarceration. So why don't you each uh, take a turn and just briefly um, tell us why you became involved in those activities. So Ghani, why don't, why don't you go? Yeah. Um, it's a, it's, it's, it's a deep dive <laughs> question invites, um, probably more than we have the time for, but let me say that, um, when I was in the police station, um, and I was allowed that first phone call, um, you could imagine, you know, who the first person I called was and the only person I called. It was the very person that I had left um, worried, stressed out to the point where she had developed a tumor inside of her, um, her uterus, you know, um, my mother. Um, she um, had worried so much, didn't know if I was alive or dead for a long time. And um, while I was on my youthful escapade, you know, basking in what I thought was independence, you know, I wasn't um, thinking about the pain that I'd caused her, you know, until I got in trouble, she was the one I called. And sure enough, she, um, she got on that Amtrak train and came down from Brooklyn, New York to Philadelphia, um, no questions asked you know, the very same day of the phone call. And she came to Philadelphia with bags of what she thought I would need in prison, pajamas, underwear, socks, cosmetics, you know, and all of these things and three books, the autobiography of Malcolm X, the autobiography of Nelson Mandela and Mark Mathibani's Kaffir Boy, which was a story of, yep. that was set in, post, set in apartheid South Africa. And um, it was me opening those pages. You know, the first book I read was Alex Haley's piece, The Autobiography of, of Malcolm X. With every turn of the page, it would explode brain cells, is how I would describe it, you know, because it would open me up to struggles that people all around the world were mired in, more serious struggles, and kind of like held up a mirror to me you know, of the shameful and puerile and selfish and wayward pursuits that I was on, you know what I mean? But as I read more and more about how Malcolm transformed himself, you know what I mean? It kind of like gave me um, not just inspiration, but a blueprint, you know, because politics, whatever his politics are, whether you agree with it or not, or we agreed with it or not, Malcolm became like a model for how you, how you change from someone who hurt your community and hurt yourself and hurt other people to someone who wanted to make a meaningful contribution to the world. You know what I mean? And so that set me on a path to kind of like regaining my humanity and moral rectitude, or at least it whet my appetite for, for, for that. And it whet my appetite for more knowledge, you know, seeing how he would read 15 hours a day sometimes you know, after I read those books, then going on to read Nelson Mandela and see the power of intellect, how it, you know, served him, you know, and 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 it just whet my appetite for 
for more knowledge. And I would go on to just gorge myself on books and everything that I could find and get my hand to read. I read everything from history to politics, to neuroscience, to psychology, studied all kinds of different religions. And my self-accusing spirit would only get louder and louder with the deepening of my consciousness. You know what I mean? And trapped in the privacy of my own self, you know, my self-accusing spirit you know, would take me to the mat, you know. Um, yeah, I, I would say that it is, it's, it's self-education, right? Those three books that my mother brought for me, setting me on the path to self-education or, or the path to erudition would begin my own personal transformation. And then I would also get into religion, you know, um, from the age of 16, you know, I just, started studying Islam. Um, and I was, you know, into Islam until about the age of 22. You know, I just started reading more stuff about history. And, you know, and eventually I, I just became kind of like uh, disillusioned with, with all institutionalized forms of, you know, religion. And I, you know, I considered myself, okay, uh, somebody that wanted to explore what spirituality was, but in a way that sort of connectedness of everyone, you know, and I, I became disillusioned with how divided, you know, people were over institutionalized religions and stuff like that. And so that would whet my appetite for studying all kinds of different things that, you know, that brought people together. Climate change, for instance, you know what I mean? Things that impacted everybody and that everybody should be concerned about. And so, yeah, um, of course, it didn't go that easy. My, my growth and development didn't happen in a straight line like that. I spent years in solitary confinement. I dealt with abuse by guards. I was caught up in the largest prison riot in the state's history. You know, um, seven Attica? No, that was in Pennsylvania state oh. history, uh, the, the Camp Hill riot. Oh. Yeah. Um, and that was at the from the age of 16 to 17. I was placed in an adult state prison, you know, so... Being able to survive that, and let me just say, when I went to prison, I was 130 pounds, 15 years old, and let me add light skin. You know what I mean? It went that that combination there in 1987, when jail was still jail and prison was still prison, you know, made you kind of like um, pray. Mm -hmm. You know, so the fact that uh, I made it through from that phase to to December 28th, 2017, when I walked out of prison 30 years and three months later, fully intact, mm. you know, with my humanity and dignity fully intact is a miracle in itself, you Absolutely. know, but I attribute my survival to my self-education and connecting with other people along the way, like Terrell Carter, who valued self-education and knowledge, and also being groomed by some thorough old head who I discovered in the dungeons of prison. Thank you. That's incredible. What a journey. All right. So, Rel, what about you in terms of why you chose certain things to become involved in as opposed to something else? Um, so, Ghani kind of mentioned earlier, and this is something that I like literally just discovered like recently within the last couple of weeks. But Ghani talked about um, earlier about um, when you're condemned to a death by incarceration prison sentence, it means that 
you know, barring the miracle that you'll get out when you die. That's the reality. And I've watched, seen so many guys um, die in prison. Um, people that I knew, people that I loved, like, didn't make it out. So with that being the case, um, I've always believed that I would get out of prison. I may have not been able to see it a lot of times, but I've always believed that like within me. And so as a result of that belief, whenever I talked about it, I would always say, when I go home, I'm going to do this. When I get out, when I get out, when I get out. And people that hear somebody speak this way who has a death by incarceration prison sentence, sometimes they look at it like, yo, this guy's crazy. He keeps talking about when he get out. Don't he know he ain't never getting out? They don't never say it out loud, but that's what they think. think. And so, but I still would always say, you know, when I get out, when I get out, when I get out, never if, always when. But what I was doing that I didn't know was I was internalizing that, that belief. It became, I internalized it. And so as a result of that, it influenced everything that I did. Everything that I did was about becoming a better version of myself so that when the opportunity arose, I would be in perfect position to take advantage of it. You know, and so that's exactly what happened. So everything that I did was about my freedom. It was about becoming a better version of Terrell the hospice kid, the higher education, um, staying out of trouble for the most part. All that was a direct result of me saying constantly, when I go home, I spoke my freedom into existence. I literally believed it. And it's something that I literally just figured out recently, like for all those years, and Ghani can attest to it because we all did it. We all spoke in this way. When we go home, we're going to do this. Guy, when we get out in the streets, we're going to get together. Look, this is what this is what's happening. But as it, but everything that I did from becoming active in the struggle to uh, uh, end death by incarceration, all that was a direct result of me understanding that I was going to go home, or me believing the fact that I was going to go home. So I had everything that I did was directly connected to that. That's great. And one of the things, yeah, of course. Yeah. Um... I just want to say that, you know, I definitely identify with that, that frame of mind and that mindset that Rel um, just articulated about always believing that you're going to get out or that you're going to go home. Um, I believe the same thing. And I, wanted, I just wanted to be clear. Um, is everything all right? No, um, I... I just, uh, I think my husband just came home and we're still recording. Um, so we'll just keep going. We, we should be uh, ending our, our segment anyway shortly. So go ahead, finish what you yeah. were saying. No, 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 no Harriet, I, I just wanted to be clear. And, I, and, I, and I'm speaking for me on this and I'm quite sure Rel probably feel the same way. Um, when I said I believed that I would get I was going to get home and that I never didn't believe I was going to get home. I, that wasn't from the mindset that I felt entitled to get home. I, I see to be free. Right. right? I, I didn't I feel you. entitled like I was owed anything. Mm-hmm. I just right. felt I just felt that 
some good would happen, some grace would come my way to allow me the opportunity and the chance to demonstrate, you know what I'm saying? To show the world, to show my mother, especially, right? And show my community that I'm not that person anymore, that I would get an opportunity to show and prove, right? That I have changed, that I've transformed, that I've redeemed myself, right? That I had regained my humanity and moral rectitude. I believe that somehow I would earn that, right? That I would be rewarded with that. Not that it was owed to me, I just believe that some good would come my way to give me a chance to try my hand at some of the ideas that had occurred to me about how to con- contribute to solving some of the problems in the world and so on and so forth, right? And some of the problems that was afflicting my community. I just believe that I would get a chance to do that. And, that and, and I, I didn't believe that it was my I didn't believe that it was my destiny to die in prison with permanently blood-stained hands without ever getting an opportunity to try to make things right. That's the spirit I was coming from. That's great. Well, we are just about out of time here. I've got many questions to ask you, but you both have agreed to come back and speak with us again so we can keep talking about this incredible topic. Uh, And I thank you both for joining me today. And I hope my listeners have learned something valuable and and please join us again because there's much more to come thank you for being on uh, listening to pursuing justice today and we'll see you next time thanks for having me you're welcome thank you so much harriet bless your heart thank you thanks for listening to my podcast today you've been listening to pursuing justice on society bites radio I'm your host, Harriet.